0: Hey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for making this program a part of your daily routine. I'm going to try to make it worth your while today. I'm going to take a hard look at the world around us, but at the same time, I have this this overarching goal to share with you some encouragement. I don't know why, but today I feel like we need a little bit of encouragement. If nothing else, just a reminder that despite the confusion, the anger, the chaos that's going on around us, there's something that you and I have to offer this world that is positive, that is uplifting, and that the world actually needs. We'll be doing that actually towards the end of the hour. I have a very thoughtful piece from Alan Stevo that was published on lewrockwell.com earlier today, cuts right through the fear and anger, and describes why the world needs your very best right now. In the meantime, though, a couple of different things that I would like to uh, to start with. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the uh, the witch hunt, the firing of the innocent, And it's a terrific article from Yasha Mouk at The Atlantic called Stop Firing the Innocent. We'll get to that in a few moments. We're going to talk about how in the name of tolerance, California has blacklisted Idaho, apparently to show us what real, authentic tolerance looks like. But I wanted to start with something a little closer to home here, just with a question. Are you hearing more people or seeing more people lighting off fireworks this year? The question asked by J.L. Zagorski is, why are so many people lighting off fireworks? And his take is that the number of fireworks being lit off at night is out of control this year. Now, he says, well, people often light off fireworks close to the 4th of July. He says this year, fireworks have been lit in large numbers starting many weeks earlier. In fact, New York City had a 4,000% increase in fireworks complaints in the first two weeks of June compared to last year. That actually prompted Mayor Bill de Blasio to vow a crackdown on fireworks. Well, illegal fireworks. Complaints about fireworks aren't confined just to New York City, but you're seeing it in cities across the country like San Francisco, Denver, Harrisburg, Albuquerque, Providence, and many others. By the way, links to stories in every one of these cases in his article. And he says this has led to a rise in conspiracy theories, including one that the nightly noise is an elaborate government plot to create confusion in neighborhoods. Hmm. Interesting thought. Now, in this case, Jay Zagorski says he's an economist who has spoken and written about fireworks for years. But after hearing a constant barrage nightly for weeks, he started wondering, why is it that so many people are lighting off fireworks this year? And his first answer is it's not economics. He says there are two possible economic reasons behind the increase in fireworks usage. It could be falling prices. It could be increased supply. But neither of these is the culprit behind the increase in fireworks usage this year. The vast majority of fireworks shot off in the U.S. are manufactured overseas, mainly in China. And every shipment of fireworks brought into the U.S. includes a very detailed invoice that shows the quantity and price the importer paid. So looking at price data for the first four months of 2020 show importers paid an average of $2.63 per kilogram for fireworks from China. A year earlier, importers paid an average price of $2.60 per kilogram. What this means is prices rose very slightly from 2019 to 2020. So it's not the falling price argument. Increased supply is also not the reason. He says in a typical year, there are two holidays with widespread firework usage. That would be New Year's Eve and the 4th of July. Now, deliveries in 2020 are an exception to this pattern. Because of the coronavirus, the U.S. imported very few fireworks back in March. Now, during the first four months of 2020, the U.S. imported 9 million kilograms of fireworks from China. And while that seems like a large number, in reality, that is less than a third from a year earlier. And it's not legal reform either that could explain all of these uh, fireworks events that are going on. Most major dense cities like New York, Chicago, and San Francisco actively ban fireworks. However, if neighboring jurisdictions have loosened their rules, then people can easily drive outside the city to purchase fireworks. I mean, come on, this is one of the time-honored traditions around Independence Day. Where can I go to get the good stuff? You know, as a kid growing up in southern Idaho, it was easy to just realize, well, you just go across the bridge, go over to Jerome County, and there was always some guy who was, you know, selling something out the back of the fireworks stand that uh, was not on public display. He was very cool, too. And we wasted a lot of money, but that's beside the point. Now, there's been a steady reduction in state prohibitions against individuals using fireworks, says Jay Zagorski. He says, today, only one state, Massachusetts, completely prohibits individuals from owning or using any type of fireworks but you know every other state allows the, allows them in some form however the two most recent states to allow consumers to shoot off fireworks are New Jersey in 2017 and Delaware in 2018 so since most states have relaxed prohibitions against fireworks more than 2 years ago recent rule changes probably aren't behind the increase in fireworks being lit and off so what is the most likely culprit Well, Jay Zagorski says to find the real reason, it helps to consider that millions of Americans have been locked down in their homes and apartments for months. An employee at a fireworks store in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, put it this way. People are bored. They just want to blow stuff up. And he says, while this argument is understandable, I think the most likely reason is even simpler, and it has a lot to do with opportunity costs, something economists spend a lot of time talking and thinking about. Opportunity costs put a dollar value on what else a person could do with their time. For example, before the pandemic, I had many choices at night. I could go out with with friends. I could work. I could watch television or see a movie in the theater. But shutting down restaurants, theaters, bars, and other venues, COVID-19 dramatically reduced his choices. And the pandemic also has thrown millions out of work. Many people who normally would be working at night aren't. So that means the opportunity cost for using fireworks is exceptionally low compared with before, since there are so few opportunities to socialize, to, to be entertained, or to work. Now, beyond lower opportunity costs for fireworks users, there are also many unemployed people who are now looking for opportunities to earn money. Buying fireworks in a rural area like northern Pennsylvania and then selling them at higher prices in a city that bans their sale, like, say, New York City, can be easy and profitable. So few arrests are made for fireworks that the FBI, which tracks problems like moonshining and polygamy on its detailed list of offenses, doesn't even give it a category. Now, he says, keep in mind, fireworks are dangerous. And while a few people die each year from using them, the latest figures for 2019 show fireworks hurt about 10,000 people each year in the U.S. However, massive unemployment caused by COVID-19 is also dangerous. And then there's that old quote that idle hands lead to mischief in this case, idle people, lead to large amounts of illegal fireworks usage. So Jay Zagorski says, my belief is that once the millions of unemployed people in the U.S. go back to work, the number of illegal fireworks shot off will rapidly decrease and will once again be limited to times around New Year's Eve and the 4th of July. I thought it was an interesting little take, and I, I only say this because we've been having a conversation. My son right now is living at home He's graduated high school. He's working steadily. He's actually making really good money. And he really was determined. I want to go buy fireworks for the 4th of July. I don't know if this is a conversation that other families are having, but, uh, you know, this is when I realize yes, you have actually turned into your dad because I find myself pleading with him. Don't waste your money on fireworks. All you're doing is you're converting money into smoke and noise. And, you know, it, it falls on deaf ears. And maybe that's the advantage of him being 19 years old and, you know being able to to make these choices um certainly he's willing to spend his own money but i see it as more of a, a it's it's more of a waste of money than the pleasant distraction that it once was but to be fair i was the guy who was wasting my discretionary income when i was his age and i think there is something to be said for that time honored tradition of of setting off fireworks i can't speak for every neighborhood out there but I have, uh, I have watched for the last two 4th of, of Julys in my neighborhood, and I don't know what it is. You know, there, my, my home state of Utah has some, some fairly stringent uh, restrictions on fireworks. As a kid, you could only have sparklers and snakes. And those were those were the dumbest fireworks, at least the snakes, basically just a little glowing pile of black ashes that uh, made a mess and left marks on the street. The sparklers, well, that's pretty self-explanatory, but the cool kids had big brothers or maybe parents who would drive to Evanston, Wyoming and go get the really good illegal stuff, bottle rockets, firecrackers, etc., Well, I see all kinds of aerial stuff, all kinds of amazing illegal fireworks. My neighborhood goes absolutely nuts. So, one way or another, I get to enjoy a great fireworks show. I'm going to be watching closely. I haven't seen as much as uh, the article describes here, but I'm betting that we'll probably see more than average as Independence Day approaches. like that we are back thank you so much for joining us this is the brian hyde show i'll be opening up the phones in the next hour i hope you'll uh, stick around for that let's talk for a moment about tolerance i i love uh, how uh, sometimes uh, there's this conundrum of well in order to teach tolerance we have to be completely intolerance or intolerant of intolerance does that make sense it seems like really crazy logic to me but if you want to see what that looks like in practice there's a great article by Nicole Russell on, in, on intellectualtakeout.org in the name of tolerance, California blacklists Idaho. Now, listen to this. In a bizarre show of authoritarianism, even for them, California state officials have decided to ban state funded travel to Idaho because of its transgender law. In a press release, California's Attorney General Xavier Becerra said, Where states legislate discrimination, California unambiguously speaks out. The state of Idaho has taken drastic steps to undermine the rights of the transgender community, preventing people from playing sports in school or having documentation that reflects their identity. Now, in his comments... Becerra was referring to a legislation signed by Idaho Governor Brad Little that banned biological males who say they identify as girls or women from participating in female sports at public schools and universities. Now, be honest with me. Is that what you expected when you were hearing, oh, well, Idaho discrimination? I'm sure this has to be those Aryan Nation guys up at Hayden Lake in northern Idaho. Nope. Nope. It has something to do with uh, uh, an increasingly controversial topic that I I think even 50 years ago, if you had asked people, hey, is this ever going to be an issue? They'd have just sat there and looked at you like a brook trout. Like, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? Guys who identify as biological males, who identify as girls or women, wanting to participate in female sports at public schools, colleges, and universities. Now, apparently House Bill 500, called the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, passed by a significant margin in Idaho's House and Senate. And, and, and the point here is this wasn't even controversial among Idaho residents. Now, California's legislature, known for creating inclusive legislation, has a provision on the books that struck back at Idaho for passing this act. How convenient. The legislature passed Assembly Bill 1887, prohibiting taxpayer-funded travel to states with, quote, discriminatory practices. That ban applies to all of California's state agencies, departments, boards, authorities, and commissions, and all of its public universities. Following Idaho's passage of its transgender bill, California added Idaho to a list of states already subject to a travel ban. Idaho, in fact, became the 11th state on the blacklist, along with Texas, North Carolina, South Carolina, and others. And what's maddening about this, the article says, is that California fancies itself the model of progress, the example of fairness and equality and inclusivity. And here uh, the author, Nicole Russell, says, well, frankly, in many ways it is. But passing a provision that blacklists states that ensure everyone's freedoms remain intact and then making a big show of adding that state to a list as if that state had committed a crime seems a little bit contradictory, if not hypocritical. So much for tolerance. It's not only showboating, but it's also in direct opposition to everything that California says it stands for. If any state is going to be pro-woman, wouldn't it be California? Home of Hollywood, where the place where so many dreams come true for women in entertainment? If any state's going to be pro-inclusivity, why is it a bridge too far for California to honor a state that honors women? just as San Francisco and Los Angeles are home to some of the largest gay populations in the country. Why can't California be tolerant of women and transgender individuals? If anything, this move appears so anti-feminist that she says, I'm not sure how California can claim to be pro-feminist after this. It's extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, to be pro-woman and pro-transgender. The outlooks are diametrically opposed to one another. Now, the point here is California can do what it wants, of course, just as Idaho can. Idaho passed this perfectly logical provision ensuring that women in sports can safely and fairly compete only with biological women. The legislature, the voice of Idaho's residents, passed this bill. California's response to blacklist Idaho seems immature, if not overly authoritarian, and even for California. What has been accomplished other than some political grandstanding? The point here is that progressives have ushered in a trend that hasn't been happening long, but it's proven effective in a short amount of time. They yell discrimination over anything uncomfortable, different, or even traditional. Since when is it discriminatory to say that only girls can play on a girl's soccer team? That's not discriminatory. That's the rules. If I joined the collegiate chess club but couldn't play chess and was kicked off, can I sue for discrimination? What next? Do women want to report a fraternity for discrimination? A state that's unwilling to partner with another because the second state wants to treat women with fairness is trading one movement for another, a far more progressive one. And in this case, Nicole Russell says, you know, I can I can tell you that this is not the panacea that it's that being made out to be. She says, I can tell you the transgender ideology is far less forgiving than the feminist movement will ever be. Discrimination has become a buzzword with so many applied meetings to fit all interest groups that it now has almost no meaning. The word fails to cover even the lowest denominators, such as race or religion, which were the original triggers for anti-discrimination laws that nearly everyone agrees on. Not anymore. Those categories are so 2019. They're now co-opted by transgenderism, the cause du jour. And this has hurt everyone including those who need protection from discrimination the most, as they're the groups that are really discriminated against. In this case, it's women who fought hard for equality in sports, among other public arenas. Nicole Russell says, California is a state that used to exemplify a kind of gutsy, progressive American individualism and exceptionalism with its stunning films, gay pride parades, and dazzling Orange County wealth but by succumbing to the progressive mantra that everyone except straight men is discriminated against and every act is discriminatory, California has fallen prey to its own game. It has watered down the best aspects of the Golden State to a dull sheen. If everyone is discriminatory, no one can believe anything. If everyone is discriminated against, who can be protected and why should anyone bother protecting them? California's leading the way in the discrimination wars... And she says, it's losing a battle, it can never win. Kind of an interesting take, wouldn't you say? And I mean, look, I I mean no disrespect whatsoever to those who, uh, for whatever reason, find themselves in a a transgender situation. But you have to admit, there there is a problem when individuals who were born as biological males... Start competing in women's sports and dominate. You know, I mean, it's, it's a reality. And I guess that's the, that's the thing that gets me is we're, we're not supposed to acknowledge the reality. That is considered insensitive. That is considered discriminatory. How dare you? And so California says, well, fine, Idaho. We will just withhold our travel, at least on official business, to you. I can tell you that Idaho is probably looking at California and saying, yeah, I wish you would have done that back when COVID-19 became an issue. Because that's when a bunch of your people, not traveling officially, of course, just traveling privately, your jet setters wanted to flee California with its stringent lockdown policies and instead go hang out in their homes in Sun Valley area, you know, of of central Idaho. And they brought with them a little present. They brought the COVID-19 virus and Southern and Central Idaho have seen a tremendous amount of cases brought there by California. Just another little gift that keeps on giving. So maybe if California is, you know, threatening, well, we're not going to travel to your state anymore. Idaho might just be in a position where they could say, well, thank you. Let's keep it that way. <laughs> At least until this, uh, this pandemic has blown over and, uh, you know, you can start uh, uh, being a little more responsible. I don't know. I, I, I find it hard to believe, but the evidence is telling me that there are people who literally get up in the morning looking for reasons to be offended, looking for reasons to feel oppressed. I'm not sure that's a very happy or successful way to go through life, but uh, hey, to each his own. But don't blame me if I don't want to jump on that bandwagon. This is The Brian Hyde Show, and I want to talk for a few moments about one of the scarier things that I see happening around us. I know, in the year 2020, that could be just about anything, right? Specifically, it's the witch hunt and the firing of the innocent. And that's uh, that's a thing that I think has a lot of people on edge, because... As I was reading in the article yesterday, um, oh, shoot, I can't remember. I, I can't remember whose article it was, but there was a statement made about how people are on trial in the court of public opinion for things that weren't even a crime just six months ago. And Yasha Malk, a contributing writer at The Atlantic, has a terrific column about how America needs a reckoning over racism. And, and it's not in the way that uh, you may be thinking, right? I mean, isn't that what the protests in the streets are all about? No, we're talking about instead punishing people who didn't do anything wrong and how it actually harms an important cause. I've read a lot of really disturbing you know, things over the last few weeks, but this is this is, one of the more, this is one of the more scary articles I've read. Not so much because the author has radical ideas, but because, because uh, Yasha has, has really zeroed in on what is a terrible problem and a huge and growing injustice. Yasha Malk says, as companies and organizations of all sorts have scrambled to institute a zero-tolerance policy on racism over the past few weeks, some of them have turned out to be more interested in signaling their good intentions than punishing actual culprits. And this emphasis on appearing rather than being virtuous has already resulted in the mistreatment of innocent people, not all of them public figures or well-connected individuals with wealth to cushion their fall. For instance, what happened to Emmanuel Cafferty is an especially egregious example. At the end of a long shift mapping underground utility lines, he was on his way home, his left hand casually hanging out the window of a white pickup truck issued to him by the San Diego Gas and Electric Company. When he came to halt at another traffic at a traffic light, another driver flipped him off. Then, Cafferty said the other driver began to act even more strangely. He flashed what to Cafferty looked like an OK hand gesture and started cussing him out. When the light turned green, Cafferty drove off, hoping to put an end to the disconcerting encounter. But when Cafferty reached another red light, the man now holding a cell phone camera was there again. Doing and shouting at him, do it, do it. Unsure what to do. Cafferty copied the gesture the other driver kept making. The man appeared to take a video or perhaps a photo. Well, two hours later, Cafferty got a call from his supervisor who told him someone had seen Cafferty, are you ready for this, making a white supremacist hand gesture, and had posted photographic evidence on Twitter. Now, likely unbeknownst to most Americans, the alt-right has apparently appropriated a version of the OK symbol for their own purposes because it looks like the initials for white power. That's the symbol the man accused Cafferty of making when his hand was dangling out of his truck. Dozens of people were now calling the company to demand Cafferty's dismissal. By the end of that call, Cafferty was suspended without pay. By the end of the day, his colleagues had come by his house to pick up the company truck. By Monday, he was out of a job. See how that works? Cafferty is a big, calm, muscular man in his 40s, born and raised in a diverse working class community on the south side of San Diego. On his father's side, he has both Irish and Mexican ancestors. His mother is Latina. He says, if I was a white supremacist, I'd literally have to hate 75% of myself. After finishing high school, Cafferty bounced from one physically demanding and poorly paid job to another. For most of his life, he had trouble making ends meet, so his new job was set to change all that. Cafferty told him, told, <coughs> excuse me, told the author, I was very proud of my position. It was the first time in my life where I wasn't living check to check. Now, when he was wrongly accused of being a white supremacist, he fought hard to keep his job. He said he explained to the people carrying out the investigation, all of them were white, that he had no idea some racists had tried to appropriate the OK sign for their sinister purposes. He simply told them he wasn't interested in politics as far as he remembered. He hadn't voted in a single election for that matter. Eventually, he told them, eventually he said, I got so desperate. I was showing them the color of my skin. I was saying, look at me, look at the color of my skin. But it was all to no avail. S, D, G, and E, Cafferty said, never presented him with any evidence that he held racist beliefs or even knew the meaning of the gesture, but he was terminated. Now, as you can understand, the loss of his job has left Cafferty shaken. A few days ago, he spoke with a mental health counselor for the very first time in his life. And he told the author of this story, a man can learn from making a mistake, but what am I supposed to learn from this? It's like I was struck by lightning. And after Cafferty told his side of the story, the initial social media vilification he'd experienced gave way to a kind of embarrassed silence. The man who posted a picture of the encounter on Twitter deleted his account and admitted to Priya Siddhar, a local news reporter, that he may have got spun up about the interaction and misinterpreted it. Repeatedly asked whether they had any evidence that Cafferty was a white supremacist or had known the meaning of the inverted OK symbol or had previously even been reprimanded for his performance. Well, his former employer refused to answer, nor did the company respond to requests for confirmation that the team had invested that investigated Cafferty was all white. A company representative did provide a generic statement SDG and E employees are held to a high standard and expected to live up to our values every day, whether in interactions with fellow employees or the public. The company did more than simply react to the photo. Multiple factors led to the decision to terminate. We conducted a good faith and thorough investigation that included gathering relevant information and in multiple interviews and took action in line with those values. We are not able to reveal the full full circumstances surrounding our investigation. We stand by our decision and will not be covering, or will not be, sorry, that was a Freudian slip, covering our butts any further, commenting any further, is what they actually said. As for Cafferty, his only desire even now is to get his job back. And when the author asked him whether he'd like to share anything else at the end of a long interview, his first thought was for the company that fired him. He said, I feel like SDG&E is a victim in this as well. Some guy sent a Twitter mob after them, and they were just trying to defend themselves. He said, perhaps I'm naive and loyal to a fault, but they were put in a bad position. I'd say that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty, that's a pretty stand-up point of view for a guy who's just been unceremoniously shown the door and, and terminated. Now, Emmanuel Caffrey's story is not one of a kind. Other companies trying to prove to the public, hey, we take racism seriously, have also sacrificed business partners or employees who likely did nothing wrong. David Shore, for example, until recently was a data analyst at a progressive consulting firm, Civis Analytics. Shore's job was to think about how Democrats can win elections. When Omar Wasow, a professor at Princeton, published a paper in the country's most prestigious political science journal arguing that nonviolent civil rights protests had, in the 1960s, been more politically effective than the violent ones, Shore tweeted a simple summary of it to his followers. This is what he said. Post-MLK assassination race riots reduced Democratic vote share in surrounding counties by 2%, which was enough to tip the 1968 election to Nixon. Nonviolent protests increase Dem vote, mainly by encouraging warm elite discourse and media coverage. Now, because that tweet coincided with the first mass protest over the killing of George Floyd, it generated some pushback. And after a progressive activist accused Shore of concern trolling for the purposes of increasing Democratic turnout, a number of people on Twitter demanded he lose his job. Less than a week after he tweeted the findings of Wasel, who by the way is black, Sivis' senior leadership, which is predominantly white, fired Shore. Reached for comment, Civis denied that the tweet led to the firing. We have not, nor would we ever, terminate employees for tweeting academic papers. These rumors are incorrect and unsubstantiated. Civis was founded on the principles of free speech and the pursuit of truth through objective scientific research, and that has not changed. This is an internal personnel matter, and out of respect for our employees and alumni, we will be covering our butts. I'm sorry. No, they actually said we will not be commenting further. You're kind of picking up on the boilerplate that they always seem to fall back on. When the author here pressed Civis for evidence that Shore had been, despite appearances, fired for wrongdoing unrelated to his tweet, the company asked the author to publish a new statement. It was almost identical to the original, but it omitted the first sentence asserting that Civis would never terminate employees for tweeting academic papers. One Civis employee who requested anonymity for fear of professional repercussions said the only reason for the firing That was communicated that they heard was that client and staff was the client and staff reactions to the tweet. And the employee also said that at our company wide meeting after Shores firing blew up on Twitter. Dan Wagner, the CEO, said something along the lines of freedom of speech is important, but he had to take a stand with our staff, clients and people of color. Can you see where this leads there are, there are some things here that, that we can learn from this. First of all, these incidents damage the lives of innocent people without achieving any noble purpose. And second, these kind of injustices are liable to provoke a political backlash. And third, those who want to actually build a better society need to defend the innocent because any movement that's willing to sacrifice justice in the pursuit of noble goals have again and again built societies that were characterized by pervasive injustice. No matter how worthy the cause they invoke, you should not trust anyone who tries to abandon these fundamental principles. So says Yasha Monk, contributing writer at The Atlantic. I'm sure there's a big lesson in there for all of us. Take a look at the article for yourself and see what you think. Just like that, we are back. Welcome to The Brian Hyde Show. Wanted to share a very hopeful message. And I know you don't get a lot of that these days. I, And, and frankly, I, if, if anybody's piling on the fear, it's probably me. So guilty as charged. I, I really don't want to leave you feeling uh, you know, hopeless or, or feeling like you're in despair. But with all the bad news that's going on, I love it when I come across something that takes just a little bit different slant. And Alan Stevo has been a really consistent contributor to lewrockwell.com if you don't stop by lewrockwell.com on a regular basis you're missing out because it's a great to aggregator site lots of different articles lots of different slants all with a very positive freedom uh, free market oriented take and this is alan stevo's latest it's called bunet uh, let me see if i'm pronouncing this correctly bunessen Okay, I I hope I'm saying it right. If you're from Scotland, you can correct me on this. But he says, in a hymnal, every song represents someone who took hours to craft it. Maybe weeks, maybe months, who then spent even more time sharing it with others. Many others went through this process, failing along the way. Text was added and changed. Tunes were tweaked. A great deal of human effort and sacrifice later, it appeared in a hymnal to be sung by you. Someone forsook other activity for the activity it took to make that hymn a reality. And I love how he says this. Imagine the amount of passion represented by one of those hymns in that heavy book that you hoist each Sunday. And he says this process, by and large, isn't a well-structured process. In other words, there's no right way to get it done. Many pieces of writing you read, articles, essays, poems, go through a similar process. While our era is one that acts to professionalize every human activity writing largely remains an exception. So, for instance, in a hymn book, hundreds of hymns in length, you may have some people who have, oh, I don't know, ten hymns to their credit. Each hymnal you pick up, therefore, represents the work of hundreds of people who were so moved that they put in the effort to make each one of those hymns a reality. Now, from here he shifts and he talks about Bunessen. The, that's the name of a small Scottish village, and a tune was sung there. Someone sang that tune first. Long after that, someone put words to that tune that were different from the original. A translator, Lachlan McBean, affixed the name Bonessen to the tune in the 1880s. At that time, it became the tune for a widely known church hymn, a beloved one at that. Imagine what it would be like for the long-deceased person who first sang that tune to a crying baby to be able to see a full church singing that song. Imagine what it would be like for that person hearing Cat Stevens sing it to a full stadium alongside the words for morning has broken. Imagine what it would be like to know that millions a day sing that song in church. It's kind of an interesting exercise, right? And the point here that Steve, that uh, Alan Stevo rather is making is there are activities that work better than others to make your dreams a reality. He says, in our lives, we're called upon to do our best and work our hardest and smartest for as long as we can. That's the very best we can do. And we have no idea where the ripples set in motion by our life may come to an end. Nor can we know which decisions in our lives will make the most ripples. Anyone who's attended a funeral in memory of a life well lived understands how true that is. Now, let's bring this home. He says, we are in a historical moment. Two powerful ideologies are in conflict with one another. A level of conflict never seen in the United States in time of peace. And the outcome of this moment will decide many moments hence. Medical doctors, epidemiologists, statisticians, and modelers have opinions, but their opinions matter fairly little. Not one, not a committee full, not dozens of committees full. The committees don't matter. Their PhDs don't matter. Their credentials don't matter. They can't offer what the moment calls for. He says it's the philosopher who must be turned to. It is the writer. It is the thinker. They may have something to offer. But this is the key. He says, more importantly, it is you who matter. Between your ears, developed over years of struggle, redrafting, learning, trialing, erring, and learning some more... Has your life philosophy been developed? And dare I say, praying. If you found your way to this hidden corner of life where this piece of writing lives, then he says, I have a little question about the next. I have little question rather about the next. He says, the world needs to hear more from you and less from the people who can offer little more than data. Do you hear the call that he is issuing here? The world needs to hear more from you and less from the people who can offer us little more than data. Now, what that means to you is going to differ from person to person, but that reached out and grabbed my heart when I was reading this. And I thought, I got to share this. And so I am sharing it with you. Alan Stevo says data divorced from wisdom is futile. America in the spring of 2020 is futile. Turning the country over to Silicon Valley is futile. Letting public health officials, econometricians, and various algorithms uh, or om- modelers of omniscient algorithms to command the details of life, that's futile. All they offer is data divorced from wisdom. But he says people who have lived lives seeking wisdom, people who have lived lives giving themselves time to learn, people who have sought space to learn from the world, are the people most needed right now. If the best you can offer the world in a moment of crisis is a spreadsheet then you aren't the right answer. Alan Stevo says, in our increasingly specialized world, it's infrequent to see the data gather also be a student of wisdom. As many data gatherers have learned in the spring of 2020, using unapproved wisdom to interpret the data will not be tolerated. The more rural, the better. Not everyone rural gets it. The more religious, the better. Not everyone religious gets it. The more relaxed, the better. Not everyone relaxed gets it. The older, the better. Not everyone old gets it. The more you combine these characteristics and a few others, the more likely you are to find wisdom. So he says, if you want wisdom, go back and find the woman who first sang the tune of Benessin, And don't let her be subject to a moment of media fear or pharmaceutical promises to save the world. Tell her a sickness is spreading. Some people are falling ill. Some are even dying. What do I do? And in the midst of her answer, he says, you are promised more wisdom than any type A young or young wannabe urban well diplomat intellectual will be able to offer you. All they can offer you with few exceptions are data and the mistaken belief that enough data can provide wisdom. He says the two are not precedent to one another. The two are differing concepts, just like claiming enough guns will bring justice, enough medical procedures will bring health, or enough sex will bring love. The two, data and wisdom, can travel together, but the former will not suffice at bringing the latter. So you have to do the best you can with what you have. You do it as much as possible. And eventually, the bonessens emerge as treasures in the world. But he says it's not data that gets you there. In a movable feast, Hemingway described a type of person one could find at the Louvre, the measuring worm. And he's quoting Hemingway here. About a week after I met a week afterwards, I met Miss Stein and told her I'd meet Wyndham Lewis and asked her if she had ever met him. I call him the measuring worm, she said. He comes over from London and he sees a good picture and takes a pencil out of his pocket. And you watch him measuring it on the pencil with his thumb, sighting on it and measuring it and seeing exactly how it is done. Then he goes back to London and does it. And it doesn't come out right. He's missed what it's all about. So I thought of him as the measuring worm. It was a kinder and more Christian term than what I had thought about him myself. (laughs) End quote. Alan Steevo says, we live in an era that elevates the measuring worm. Under their unchallenged guidance, spring 2020 reminded us why that should never happen Again. If the lesson didn't register with enough people, it's sure to be repeated until it does. And he says one of the most commonly mentioned promises of our modern era is that of artificial intelligence. At the root of this promise is that data can bring wisdom, but it can't. Artificial intelligence assures us that enough data will eventually provide wisdom. But the reality is you will only end up with a computer with a great deal of data about you, and perhaps as a result, a lot of power and influence, but ultimately missing what it's all about. Akin to this thinking about A.I., similar thinking in our modern era says that more guns in the hand of government will bring justice. The same wisdom assures us that more sex earlier in life, later in life, sooner after an introduction and with more people will bring love. And he says in all three examples, the two are qualitatively different. Quantity will not bridge that gap. Artificial intelligence is one of many examples of qualitative and quantitative inversions in our era quantitative qualitative inversions are examples of people asking the wrong questions and consequently missing what it's all about how do we have more bonessen how do we live better how do we love more and do better for people around us those are fundamental questions And Alan Stevo says allowing ourselves to be swept up in our era's blind drive for data at the hands of disaffected nerds who demand influence over our lives ensures that we will miss what it's all about. As the Ides of March 2020 arrived, the country where some believe the pinnacle of human advancement to date can be found, the United States has shown the world how much more concerned so many are with data than wisdom. And he says, do you happen to know the way to Vanessa? I assure you, this road we are on is not it.